The main event, uh, I'm going to introduce our speaker this evening. It's Dr. Joseph Kursky. He's a geographer who works with ESRI, environmental, oh gosh, I'll let him introduce, I'll, I'll let him introduce more details. Um, my husband Don and I heard him speak a few months ago at the Rocky Mountain Map Society, and he was talking that night about the hundred, his, in his opinion, the hundred most significant discoveries in geography. And it was a fascinating talk. It was wide-ranging. It was kind of a wild ride. And uh, so we approached him, asked him if he would come out and speak with our group. I expect tonight's going to be fascinating. It might be a wild ride, too. So without further delay, I'll turn it over to you, Joseph. Thank you. Hi, folks. Greetings. The closest line of latitude to where we're standing right now, free shirt for you. Closest line of latitude. Look, Map Man, the amazing Map Man. What's the closest line of latitude? 40. The closest line of longitude to where we're standing right now. Lou. 105 West. He is also the amazing Map Man. If you do not like maps, this is going to be like you being dragged to the Barry Manilow concert and you really didn't want to be there. Now, I've seen Barry twice, and I've loved it both times, but you can always tell that looking around me, there's like people that were dragged to see Barry, but it was awesome. So if you do like maps and recognize that they are actually important to all of the 21st century issues, name a 21st century issue that does not have a where component, right? What are some 21st century issues that we need to be concerned about? Water. Water. Ah, just little issues like that. Water. What else? Climate. Population change, soil, extinctions, famine, political instability, energy, all the rest of it, right? It all has a where component. Yes, exactly. So hence, we need to be using 21st century mapping tools to understand our planet. But along the same lines, which is the theme for tonight, we need to be critical consumers of maps. So if you walk out of here being a more critical consumer of maps... That will bring geo-tears to my heart, okay? It just will. Okay, one more question for you at the moment. What ocean is zero latitude, zero longitude in? The Atlantic. Several, several right answers there. I'm going to pass around these shirts. If you find a shirt in here that is of liking to you, please take. I also have these very cool map books. These talk about why maps actually are relevant to transportation, to health, epidemiology, crime mapping, etc. Okay, so I'm going to pass around some of these map books. If you think that this is something you might be able to use, please take one. All right, so now that we can make maps like this online using, hey, U.S. Geological Survey data... And here's my background. I used to actually work at the USGS. I've had uh, the, I think, a, a very interesting sort of touching on all four major sectors of society. So most of my career was in federal agencies, NOAA, the Census Bureau, U.S. Geological Survey. I was at the USGS from like the, the Cretaceous to the Holocene, okay, for a long period of time. 
Now I'm at Esri, Environmental Systems Research Institute, so I've got that private uh, you know, mapping company perspective. I'm on their education outreach team, so it's all about how do we help educators at all level, levels, K-12, museums, libraries, Girl Scouts, 4-H, Boy Scouts, community college, university, and their students become enabled to teach and learn with geotechnologies. Now back in 2004, the U.S. Department of Labor said that there are three hot fields for the 21st century. Nanotechnologies, biotechnologies, and geotechnologies. And we are firmly anchored in the geotechnologies here tonight, folks. So... I also uh, love teaching, so I teach at the University of Denver. We've got some connections here that we were talking about, and I do some uh, educator trainings uh, for K-12, so a lot of educators will say, you know, we really want to teach with this. How do we do that? Why should we do that, etc.? So tonight, though, we're going to talk about this. Good maps, bad maps, location privacy, and why should we care about this? Sitting in Golden, Colorado on a beautiful late summer evening. Why should we care about this? Still mapping after all these years. Whoa, still mapping after all these years. Thank you. Okay, so that's our theme for tonight. I just want to make sure you folks are are still with me. Uh, Here's how to get a hold of me. This whole presentation is online, so if you want to give an elevator speech to your colleagues in your own organization, whether it's an academic institution or a private company or a government agency about why this stuff actually matters, feel free to use this. I also, warning, warning, don't go there if you value your sanity, have over 4,000 videos on my video channel. So I'm rather passionate about this, and I know you all are passionate about your own profession, and it's been great meeting some of you here this evening. Also, I'd like to point out that geographic information systems, which is what drives the maps that we are consuming nowadays, is undergoing, undergoing this massive change from all these facets that you see here. Now it's software as a service, largely. There's still desktop GIS, most certainly. But just think about all the tools that you've used today. Who uses Google Drive? Who uses OneDrive, right? They're cloud-based services. Who, who has music uh, in some service? What service are you using for your music? Okay, Spotify, Amazon Music, et cetera, et cetera, right? iTunes, et cetera. They're all cloud-based, right? Why do you use those? Why don't you just have everything local like you did 10 or 15 years ago? Okay, it, it's accessible anywhere, right? It's, you can use it on any device, so you don't just have ABBA's greatest hits on your local device, right? You can actually access it from anywhere. Some of you are like, who's ABBA? Anyway, the point is, is that you've got these cloud-based services. And I just submit to you all that it's more even, even more important that geographic information systems or mapping is online in these services because guess what? These issues that you talked about earlier... They don't stop at political boundaries, right? They don't stop at disciplinary boundaries. It's not like chemistry and biology and geography, right? They span multiple disciplines, multiple scales, and they extend beyond national borders, okay? So that's why we want to have the data and these tools up in the... 
the cloud, okay? Because we want to be able to share the models, the maps, the techniques, etc., with colleagues in other disciplines and in other places around the globe. So the technical part has transformed this. And the instructional part, yeah, it, as I mentioned, more and more educators are wanting to teach this, not just in a GIS program or geographic information system program, but in, in health, in epidemiology, in crime mapping, in biology, etc. And then the last one is these five forces that I'll just briefly, in the three hours that we have together today, talk about. One of them is geo-awareness. You know, I used to be, I used to come home from the USGS and say, I got to look at aerial photos all day, satellite imagery, cool, what's not to love? Now, how many people have looked at a satellite image in the time that we've been chatting? Millions, right? So people are becoming aware through the use of these geo-technologies. They may just be looking at, okay, point A to point B or the nearest coffee shop, but they're still using some of these tools that were formerly within just the bounds of the geographic information systems professional. That's pretty exciting because because of this enabling of society, we also have an increased amount of awareness. So all the issues that you and I chatted about five minutes ago, energy, water, population change, etc., more and more people are becoming aware of that, that these are critical issues of our time. And we need to be getting a handle on it. We need to be moving some of these variables that are going in the wrong direction into the right direction. So there's an increased awareness. And then the geotechnologies themselves, as I mentioned, and as you saw me demoing right before the, the presentation, and also citizen science. Now, who's a birder or knows birders, right? The birding community goes way back to the 19th century with citizen science. And now you've got ebird.org and other things that people can go up and collect information on pine beetle infestation. And then the nice thing that's connected to geotechnologies is that they can map it. They can map it now. And then the point is not just to make a map. The, Joseph said the point is not to make a map. No, the point is to understand the phenomenon, the issue, the, the trends of what you're studying, whether it's pine beetles or wildfires or stream flow in Clear Creek, etc. right? That's the point of doing all this mapping. It's not just to make a map and use cool tools. It's to actually understand our planet. You guys with me? Do I need to sing again? Yeah. Maps in the cloud. Do, do, do. Good times never seem so good. Maps in the cloud. Greatest hits. Okay, and finally, storytelling. So maps have always been used to tell stories for you know, hundreds of years, right? But now we've got this capability through, um, for example, story maps. So if you have not made a story map, I encourage you to go to this story map site and map something that's of interest to you. Litter in your community, invasive species on, in trees, uh, the cool place you went last summer, etc. And for those of you that are just starting out with your careers, you can make a story map of your CV. I went here on an internship, I studied over here, and now I got my first you know, a, a, a paid job here, etc. So story maps are nice multimedia maps that incorporate audio, video, text, and live interactive web maps. So you might want to take a look at this. You can get a, uh, an account and make a story map of, your, of whatever you're passionate about. If we have time at the end, I'll show you a few. But anyway, I highly encourage you to do that. So story mapping is another force that I believe is important in this discussion. All right. Now, so I've talked about story maps. It's based on this platform called ArcGIS Online. Now, it's so easy to, to neglect this topic about good maps, bad maps, and why it all matters. It's also, here's John Madden. 
It's also easy not to state the obvious. Well, yeah, we need to care about data quality. I, I, I miss John Madden. You know, it's like, if they don't score more points than the other team, they're not going to win this football game. I love that stating of the obvious, but that's kind of like this talk tonight. It's, yeah, duh, Joseph, of course, map data quality matters, but how many times do we just pull data together? Like, for example, this one right here. I mean, I love this. This is international migration data in 2D and 3D, pulling it from the UN. So I can go to any country say, oh, good on you, mate. I'm wondering if Australia, oh, there it is. So if I look at Australia, right, I can see, in, let's change it back to 2D. Sometimes it's better to look at it in 2D. So here we've got inbound and outbound. Where did the data come from? How often was it updated? Who made that map? Why did they make it? That's what we need to be doing when we're consuming these wonderful, engaging, multi-scale, often in real time, maps. I want you to be critical consumers of maps. Look at what we call the metadata for the map. Now, some maps don't have any. So you're sort of drifting out there in the New York Times or somewhere else, and it doesn't have any metadata about who made the map and why and how often they updated it. I never metadata I didn't like. That was a little geography joke. Okay. Here's a, you ready for another geography joke? There's not that many geography jokes. Here's another one, though. Her. I'm a big country fan. Him. China's a big country. Okay, that was supposed to be another geography joke. He was looking for a way to impress her. See what I mean? Okay, but see, this is really wonderful resources to be able to, to consume and to use and to make intelligent decisions with and to teach with. But where are they coming from? So be critical consumers of maps. So don't want to resort to overused phrases about this. You know, going forward, you know, we need to reach out and talk to people that are creating, you know, I don't want to go there. You know about your favorite overused phrases. But the point is, I'd like to just submit this to you. Here are the four C's of data quality. This, this extends beyond mapping, but is it complete? Is it coherent? Is it, is it correct? Is it accountable? Can we trace the lineage? So, for example... We made at the USGS, how many of you have ever used a USGS topographic map? Okay, very cool. They're cartographic products, though, and now decades later, they've been scanned in and so on. But because they were cartographic products, they were made in such a way that you could, at a certain scale, let's say 1 to 24,000 scale, look at that and, and discern the, the difference between a railroad and a road that's running parallel. And at 1 to 24,000 scale, if we drew it actually to the correct scale, they would be almost on top of each other. But we offset the roads so that you could see the railroad distinct from the roads. Now, we've scanned them in, people use them as base maps, and don't realize that some of these things that we offset, now, wait a minute, the, the road isn't there. Now, for you and I navigating, no big deal, right? Different people have different levels of accuracy that they require, right? But if you're laying a gas pipeline between that road and that railroad, you better not be using that 1 to 24,000 scale base map for the decisions that you're going to make, right? You're going to be wanting a map that's at 1 to 5,000 or 1 to 2,000. Now, you may say, well, Joseph, we can zoom in and out at any scale nowadays on these maps. Well, true. But guess what? The accuracy doesn't increase as you increase the scale. So often I'm over people's shoulders looking and they're thinking that the accuracy increases because you increase. No, it's still tied to the base data that was collected at the specific time that it was collected at. I wish I could get excited about this. What's not to love about maps, right, folks? <laughs> Okay, 
Now, we've got different kinds of data in mapping. We've got raster data, which is like overlaying a big piece of graph paper over the surface of the Earth and dividing the Earth into different cells. So elevation, rainfall, things like that are, are more conducive, that change in a, in a, a continuous way over, over space. That's raster data, a big piece of graph paper over the surface of the Earth. And the, the size of the little graph uh, paper cells is the spatial resolution of that data. Now, we also have vector data, points, lines, and polygons. Points? What are, what are points on maps? Cities, fire hydrants, water wells, mountain peaks. What about lines? Roads, rivers. Now, some of these things could be polygons, which is the third one, right? If you zoomed into a certain large scale, right, Clear Creek could be a polygon on a certain, at a certain scale, correct? So we've got raster data and vector data. Because rasters and vectors are the maps we two can share. Keychains. Rasters and vectors are the maps we two can share. Okay, that was a key change. That was bad. Okay. <laughs> now, one of the things I'd like to share with you all is these two concepts. First of all, fitness for use. You as the data user, you decide what data you're going to use that's fit for your use, whether it's finding the local coffee shop or determining the extent of the pine beetle infestation or the pattern of accidents in Jefferson County or whatever it is, right? That's your job as the data user. But the data producer, their job is truth and labeling, providing that metadata that I talked about. Now, the interesting thing about nowadays is that all of us, all y'all, as they say in Texas, are data producers and data consumers with maps, right? It used to be the national mapping agencies, right? The EPA, the USGS, and the state of Colorado, DOT, and they were the map makers, right? And we were all the consumers. But now, story maps, that earthquake map, you can make that and download the data from the earthquake center here in Golden and make your own earthquake map of the last month of earthquakes in about 30 seconds. So you're the data producer as well. And if you use a platform like ArcGIS Online, guess what? You have to provide, you should provide, if you're going to share that, you should provide the metadata that goes along with that. Because if I'm consuming your map, I, would, I want to know where you work, a little bit about why you're doing what you're doing, and where your data sources are, and so on. So we're all data producers and data consumers with mapping. It's no longer just the national mapping agencies making maps anymore. Interesting. Yeah, so that has huge implications. If I go to ArcGIS Online now, which is a boatload, a flotilla load, an armada load of maps, some of them are created by your middle school students. Some of them are created by the U.S. Department of Transportation. You've got this mixture. So how are you going to decide as the data consumer? Well, again, the metadata will help, but sometimes you need to, as you all know from your own workplace, you need to proceed sometimes in this murky water where you don't really fully know all of the limitations of the data, right? Because we're all, we all have deadlines, right? And sometimes, okay, we're just going to have to go with this because, well, just be, just be careful when you're consuming map data. Last couple points. I'm going to skip down to the end. Six reasons why I believe this matters. First of all, maps still have this air of authenticity. Remember, they're surrogates of reality. Maps are not reality as much as you and I love maps, and I hope you love maps by now, after this t 10 to 15 minutes. But they're surrogates. for re They're not reality. They're very good representations, and they have a lot of richness. That's why people have long loved maps. 
let me just have a moment. Okay, but the point is, is that they are, they are representations of reality, but they tend to have an air of authenticity, so they tend to be believed. So take a look at some of these bad maps. Oops. Oops. This is continental drift in action right here. Some of the maps I, I hate the most, and yeah, I, I, do, I can't stand these kind. Hey, some of these have a very low N value, you know, the survey value. Hey, are you from Iowa? Do you like corn? We'll put corn on the map for Iowa. I mean, they're not even scientific. They're, just gen- they're generating uh, click-throughs on web pages. They're very, uh, you know, favorite foods by state. Uh, the highest paid job in every state. Really? What kind of source did you use to figure that out? You know, and so on. So again, be critical of these maps. I mean, there's tons of examples. Sometimes the feeds themselves are not even maps, but I know it gets hot in Texas, but this is... And look at, the, look at the precipitation rate. That is like hot and rainy and super windy. Now, this was up on a, a live you know, weather feed for about 18 months. And that's when I decided I better take a screenshot before it gets changed. It never got changed. Now, it finally got changed. But again, be critical of consumers. Um, this is a, this is a, someone mentioned Google Maps earlier. This, if you go to Google Maps and you pan over to China, you get this offset. The, the, the satellite imagery is intentionally offset of the vectors for privacy and other reasons. So, again, just because it's on Google Maps doesn't mean it's 100%. Even satellite imagery, right? It, it, we've got an oblate spheroid. Right? We're living on this planet. It's not quite a perfect sphere. It's longer this way right, than it is this way. And so even satellite imagery has to be managed and, and squeezed down to a flat computer screen like we have here, or even a 3D scene, but still has to be manipulated. So even if it looks like it's fact and reality on a satellite image or an aerial photo, again, be critical of the consumer of the data. It's offset. Look at this. It's actually offset. Yeah. Okay, a couple more. So I've got a dot density map. Uh, does this mean people are actually living in, on houseboats in Marston Reservoir in southern part of Jefferson County? No, it's just, it's just one dot per every X person, right, put in a random pattern in that census tract. So again, you know, you know that they're not living there. Let's skip down to this. Oh, gosh, even references. South Carolina will cover against in-state rival UNC. <laughs> I thought, I thought there was a border between the two states. And then uh, I, my videos do not have as many views as Miss South Carolina, who said, you know, we don't, ha- we don't have enough geographic literacy because there's not enough maps. Now, you know, she was nervous at the time and so on, so cutting, you know, the benefit of the doubt. But still, I wonder if I should have some bad maps videos. Also, you get these fun posts from people sometimes via email. They kind of circulate around. This, this one about the SS Weramu that presumably was sailing in 1899 and December 31. Some of you may remember this, and it went around the Internet for a while, and then it died down and it came back. Did it really? Was it really in two different hemispheres? It's a nice story, but it's pretty unlikely that it was actually, before the advent of GPS, able to navigate right to that spot on the 31st of December in 1899. So... Anyway, be critical of those fun posts, too. They're still fun, but there's lots of the irregularities in the international dateline. Second, oh, yeah, I already talked about this. Surrogates of reality. And then another thing, be critical of the data. Even if 
you map it yourself and it's your own data. So here's an example. So how many of you have the fitness app? Okay. And you might want to map that sometimes. So some of these fitness apps have a mapping tool in them. This is uh, my route around uh, Kendrick Lake in uh, Lakewood. And you know, as I first went out, I, I truly didn't walk across people's yards, right? I didn't cross their fences. But after about five minutes from my starting point, it finally figured out, okay, Joseph's on the trail around the, around the lake. So again, these are zingers, right? They're, they're, didn't have good Wi-Fi, cell phone, and GPS triangulation. So for a while, it was sort of, eh, Joseph, somewhere in Lakewood and somewhere in Colorado. Notice, I, I spelled G-I-S with my, with, my with my fitness app. All right, that's pretty geeky. But another thing, just one last, one last example. So I was mapping Lyme disease by town. Some of you know the political geography in New England is different from here. Towns are like subsets of counties. Sometimes they don't even nest in counties, so they have some really interesting political boundaries there. But uh, when it came time for, you know, 2005, 2006-ish to roll around, I thought, you know, I want to update this data I mapped in the 1990s as Lyme disease by town. And it looked like all the numbers had gone down. Great. Well, really? Everywhere? So I ended up calling because it wasn't in the metadata, and they said, Joseph, we don't have as much funding now as we did in the 90s to track this stuff. So it's really a reflection of the fact that we aren't gathering as much information as we did. So it looks like if you were able to map, oh, 1990s Lyme disease versus 2000s Lyme disease, it looks like all the rates have been declining, but actually that was not the case. So again, I mapped it myself. I had to do some old-fashioned, ooh, ringing up the Department of Public Health in Rhode Island to find out the real story. So all that is to say that um, know your own data. Um, there's a bad data handbook. Um, oh, let me, let me show this one. Here's another one of my fitness uh, apps. <laughs> I was on Lake Michigan... The legend lives on from the Chippewa down. The point is, I was, then I mapped it. Ooh, I don't recall getting wet there, but you know, I was actually on the pier right here. But it wasn't on the base map, right? So it looks like I was actually walking on the water. Speaking of fitness, uh, I want to show you this. So I, in my data blog, I wrote a book and have a blog about data and why it matters called Spatial Reserves. So on my Spatial Reserves data blog, I wrote about this map from Strava. Some of you may have a Strava fitness app. Well, it caused a bit of a stir earlier this year when Strava published billions of people's fitness walks and runs. And, you know, it's fascinating from a geographical point of view because you can go down and, and you know, even at this scale, you can see right where my mouse is. Notice how popular Washington Park is, right? Because a lot of people walk around it. So it's bright on this map. It's collected from, again, this is, you know, talk about citizens' sensors and the Internet of Things. This is a great example of it because this is millions and millions and millions of people's fitness that they've chosen to share. So that's another thing about being critical of data. Why does that app need to know my location? No. Do you have to say yes every time? No, you don't. But there's also some interesting discussion about if you decide not to share, for example, make Google My Places, sometimes those end up being on public sites. Hmm, interesting. Even though you've said, I will not share, hmm, interesting. So, but in this case, look at this. We go over to Golden, and right where I've got my mouse, 
that's over at Golden High School, right? So there's a lot of people that walk around the track and so on and watching their kids soccer. I don't know. They've got their fitness app on. You can also see downtown Golden up here a little bit more popular than some other places. You can also see the popularity of some of the, uh, some of the trails like in Apex Park and so on. Anyway, fascinating. But again, think about when you share your location, right? That's a really um, just something to think about. There's lots of advantages, no doubt about it. Definitely lots of societal advantages and definitely advantages to people planning a new business. Knowing consumer behavior is key, right? And knowing their location is huge where they spend their time. So that is one of the things I wrote about recently. So let's uh, close up the discussion here. Location privacy, yes, folks, it matters. And if you want more, uh, again, there's, there's some items that I've written on there. Here's that book that I talked about, GIS Guide to Public Domain Data. And uh, here's a geeky picture of me, 35117. Where's this? 35117. Now you're thinking, Joshua Tree, good. Of course, the vegetation helps just a tiny bit, but you're exactly right. It's, uh, it's near Barstow. 10-4, good, buddy. There's some good truck, truck stops there. So it's getting easier to create maps. I love the capability of using that, uh, those tools that we talked about with story mapping, the 2D and 3D map of migration that I showed, the earthquake data that I showed ever so briefly. It is so easy and wonderful to have these mapping tools at our fingertips. I don't pine for the old days when, you know, we were laying this out all on film, you know, and ah, it was just very cumbersome even in the early days of GIS to get all your data aligned in the right map projection and so on and so forth. So it's just wonderful to be able to pull data from here, here, and here. But as you do that, though, just be aware of where that data is coming from. So another thing uh, that I believe is important here is that there's an increasing awareness, as I mentioned, and so an increasing number of decisions at the local, state, regional, international, national, etc., levels that are being made, which is a good thing, based on geographic data. But, again, what we're hoping to do as a mapping um, community is to influence the critical nature of uh, decisions and have decision makers use mapping tools, but also to be critical about those data sets, okay? So that's two reasons why I think this all actually matters to each and every one of us. That's, that's all good. So I'm glad you're concerned about this as well. And I have one more question for you all. If I go to this map, RTIS Online, so it's a seamless map of the world, what projection is that map in? What projection is that map in? It's in a modified version of Mercator. It's Web Mercator, which is what Google Maps is in, Yahoo Maps, ArcGIS Online. Why? Because it's easy to map coordinates in it. But if you're doing a, a study on Arctic sea ice melting, right? This is, look how distorted, right? The polar regions are in, in Mercator, right? Greenland is not bigger than, than Brazil, people, okay? <laughs> so again, maps all have their, their limitations. But realize that you can make even web maps in something other than Web Mercator. But that's exactly what this is in. Comments, questions, additional songs that we could... Yes. We're going to take a break. Sorry. We're going to take a break and get something else to drink. 
Excellent. Thanks, folks. Maps rule. And we'll post this as a podcast in a couple weeks. Um, so, Joseph, you got to help. When people ask a question, we have to repeat the question for the recording. Okay. So, any questions? We had one right there. Okay, uh, A, I'm hoping that those songs weren't captured on the podcast. Sorry. <laughs> Too late now. Uh, but B, your question about, okay, common standards for geospatial map accuracy or geospatial data quality. Yeah, I kind of breezed over a lot of this. As you probably saw, I had about two hours worth of content uh, for 20 minutes. Sorry about that. I tried to skip to the, to the key points. But if you truly want this whole thing, uh, as I mentioned, uh, it is online. And if you go to my daily Twitter feed, I've got some posts. Hey, come to the Golden Talk, and here's the presentation. So you'll find it there. And if not, just just uh, feel free to email me. But this federal uh, standard for G- digital geospatial metadata, this is what is supposed to be there, at least for federal agencies producing data. Now, as you well know, as I talked about, there are a whole raft load of people nowadays that can, you, you don't have to be at a federal agency to create map data, right? We have the power. You have the power to make your own maps. Wonderful. But in terms of guidelines, I still think it's helpful for all of us, even if you're not at a federal agency making maps for your agency, to, okay, you're going to make a map and share it with two people. Eh, how much metadata do you need to put in there for your uncle or your aunt or, you know what I mean? So think about how, how you're sharing it. With these tools, you can share it with nobody. You can share it with a group of colleagues. You can share it with a whole organization like EPA or, or University of Denver, or et cetera. Or you can share it with the whole world. Um, so think about how you're sharing it. And then have that be one of the guides for following these federal geospatial metadata standards. It's produced by this Federal Geographic Data Committee or FGDC.gov. So if you really want the, they've got some really, actually it sounds really super boring, but it's really not. They have a couple of things where they have an analogy of like a food label, you know, on a, on a package of food where you get carbs and protein, etc. That's what this metadata is really all about. It's a describing what's the content. So it, it might be, if you're super interested uh, worth your while to go to those. Just as a guide to, okay, maybe I need to think about this. Thanks. Sir. Two questions. One, what type of coffee do you drink? <laughs> <laughs> and, and two, could you remind me of that song about raster versus vector? What was the song? Oh, gosh. So Jim, right? Yeah. Hey, Jim. Jim is a geospatial guy. He's a super guy. You should, you should have a chat with him. Um, we don't need to... The question is the, the coffee. I did have a nice coffee, thanks, thanks to Karen here. It's all good. You know, Pilot Coffee is my favorite coffee. So if you guys ever go to Pilot Truck Stop, you've got to go there. you just got to go. It is way better than... 
No, it is seriously. It's like it's like this. Remember the Polar Express and that guy at the hobo guy at the top air have a cup of Joe and it was really thick and the kid was like, <gasps> "That's what it's like." It's so good. Anyway, and then the second thing about the song, seriously. If you truly want to be punished, I've got a whole bunch of Geo songs on my SoundCloud channel, but you guys have more important things to do than listen to Joseph's SoundCloud channel. But you have a serious GIS question too, right, Jim? You can think about it. Okay. Okay. Hi. Oh, okay, so about gerrymandering and uh, political redistricting. Yeah, maps are powerful, right? They've always been powerful. And, and, you know, that's really the theme that I wanted to share with you all. And we actually do, ESRI has a uh, 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 gerrymandering checking tool. It's called the redistricting tool. So you can look at population. I'm actually working with some educators to, to help their students understand, okay, you've got this state... Uh, and you've got population, and what would be your way of configuring the congressional districts in your state? So getting students to think about population change and landforms a little bit, but also getting them to use spatial technologies. So it's actually a tool out there. So, uh, you know, uh, the organization that I work for is the Environmental Systems Research Institute, and we've got a redistricting tool. Just let me uh, um, share with you one thing, why I'm, in part why I'm so passionate about education. But if you go down to here, to about those three things there, education, sustainability, and science, that is really the focal points of our whole organization. And so we have a team that started way back in 1992 that is completely focused on education. And that's the team that I'm on. So um, thanks for, thanks for the comments. Your, your, your so the, the redistricting tool, if you go here and search for the redistricting tool, you can actually get there. Stay tuned for some of those lessons, too. Yep. Go ahead. Um, Sir. Okay, so so we're going to go to the story maps zone, and we're going to look up Repeat the question. Uh, history. I will. So uh, what about historical maps? How can we uh, have students and others uh, dig into historical maps? First of all, this isn't the end-all, be-all. This gallery is like the... Story Maps Greatest Hits, Volume One. You know what I mean? It's 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 the sort of the best of. There are about seven hundred fifty thousand story maps that have been created um, since five years ago when Alan Carroll from National Geographic came over to Esri and said, "Hey, I've got this idea called Story Maps," and we're like, "Alan, here, here's a team, here's the platform. We love you, Alan. Thanks." Awesome. So Alan and his team. This has been a cool job, right? For about two years, they just cranked out a story map every month. But the really cool thing is that. When the user community from all kinds of different walks of life said, you know, we want to make these for, uh, to tell people about our city, to talk about our police force, to talk about uh, water quality in our creeks, uh, etc. So in here is a histor- historical maps gallery. Another one, though, that I, that I really love besides this is as follows. 
So this Topo Map Explorer, this is um, wonderful because all 100,000-ish USGS topographic maps have actually been scanned and put into this web mapping application. So if I go over here to this area of the world, I'm going to click in here. I'm a little south of Golden, I realize, but there's a reason. So now, at, at our fingertips, we can see, yeah, you're motoring along US 40. You got to go south here along the Hogback. Then you get up Mount Vernon Canyon. And of course, now, right, I'm going to make this semi-transparent. This is where the Hogback road cut went through, right on I-70. So you've got this access to all of these, oh my gosh, at all of these different scales. I'm getting geotingly now. At all these different scales for this 100-year time span for, okay, this is USGS, so it's USA only, but still you've got 100,000 maps at your fingertips, and you can download them and use them in your geographic information systems uh, environment for further analysis. But, okay, I'll just limit it to those two tools, but this right here is, oh my I yeah, so, okay, for, for a long time, we've been using a lot of maps that uh, have uh, some sort of distortion. As you folks probably know, all maps are distorted in some way, right? Area, distance, shape, etc. There's There's something's got to give, right? You may have seen demonstrations, maybe in your own schooling, where the, the instructor, you probably do this in class because you're such an awesome instructor, you peel an orange and, you know, you got to, something tears, right? That's kind of like tearing the, the, the surface of the earth and squishing it onto a two-dimensional paper map, a piece of film, or a computer screen, even th though we've got 3D scenes now that, like you saw in the earthquake example. But anyway, the point is, is that we, yeah, we've got maps that are, that are distorted. And if we're, again, teaching about accurate shapes and sizes of countries, I definitely would not use Web Mercator. I would use uh, an equal area projection. And uh, so you can actually make maps in different map projections. The reason why this is so commonly used is because it's, it's easy to map. It's easy to map lat-long coordinates in this kind of a projection because it's, you know, it's just, as you know, but even on this one, you can teach some good concepts. So if I go to this, if I draw a line, let's, let's use the measure tool. If I go from Denver, okay, to, uh-oh, uh-oh, there's something wrong with the computer. Uh, uh, what, what's going on? What is that? So the great, see, you folks are good. I knew this would be a, a, a high-quality group. Yeah, the great circle route. So if you're flying for, to Europe, how many have flown to Europe from Denver? Yeah, cool. So you're, it's cool because you, 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 depending on the route and maybe your final destination, you tip the south end of Greenland, too. And so it's always interesting to observe, right, when you, if, especially if you're on a non, nonstop flight out of here that people are like, why are we going into North Dakota? I thought we were going to Europe. You know, shouldn't we be going due east? Well, yeah, but it's your opportunity to do your little elevator or airplane speech about 
the earth being a sphere or an imperfect sphere and, and so on. So even on this kind of a projection, you can illustrate some of the key concepts that you're talking about, but I agree with you. I would not use this if I'm teaching about, about uh, shapes and sizes of countries or any sort of large area. Hi, Jim. So you mean on uh, the information from individuals? Oh, I really don't know. I'm being on the education team, but as you probably know, geointelligence and military applications of ge- geospatial goes way back in time. And we want those people to be well-equipped with mapping tools and technology. So there's just so many wonderful um, avenues for anybody that's thinking about any sort of career nowadays. I always tell them, you don't have to be a geographer. You don't have to be a geospatial scientist. But you're going to encounter these mapping tools and have those on your tool belt as an epidemiologist, as a city planner, etc. Because you're going to be required to be conversant with these, just like you are with uh, statistics, with uh, spreadsheets, with web tools, right? So it's, it's becoming st- sort of a standard part of not only a tool belt, but if I could have 50 more seconds, it's also becoming more of a part of every organization. You know, it used to be, let's say, the city of Golden. Uh, the GIS people, uh, yeah, they're down the hall and, and to the right. You know, they're down the stairs and they eat from vending machines, but they're really good people and go talk to them if you want a map. You know, that's kind of how it was. And now mapped data is more of a viewed as an asset, an organizational-wide asset that we need to protect this, we need to put money into it, we need to support it. I'm not going to say that every city manager, mayor, governor understands about geospatial data and its value, but, but more and more of them are viewing data as, as really a, a, an organizational asset. So it's, it empowers more people in that organization. Let's take Jefferson County. I mean, the assessors, the, the planners, the open space people. There's a huge use of GIS right here in the county and, and the city as well. But anyway, thanks for asking. Your friend, your friend here. Lou, hey. One of, one of our questioners mentioned accuracy and precision in the same breath, as if they were the same. No, 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 he was making a fine distinction. No, he was, okay. he was, yeah. How do you teach the difference? Oh, gosh. Okay, the question is uh, uh, pre- precision and accuracy. I wasn't going to get into it this deep, but this, these people are, these are good people. <laughs> you folks are... It's just a joy. It truly is. Okay, thank you. Um, but I, I oftentimes use the, the standard example that's in a lot of GIS and geography textbooks where you've got this archery example, and you've got this target, and there's four different um, diagrams in there where you know they're all clustered in the right and the bullseye. So all these arrows have gone right there. That's, so it's highly precise and highly accurate. And then there's a, uh, you know, an, uh, three other examples where it's either really precise and not very accurate or vice versa. But that's a lot of what I, I oftentimes go to that because it's, to me, it's one of the most effective examples out there. Yes, greetings. Data, 
And secondly, they always say, are you there? And is that just to be polite because they really know I'm there? <laughs> Oh, this is so good. We could have a whole presentation on on just one tool, uh, Google tool, Google tools, and location. Let me just say this: um, a lot of what's powering our world is geospatial technology, right? The food that was brought here, right? Supply chain management, how your phone got assembled, Excel running the lights in this room. That's all driven, RTD, right? it's all driven with geospatial technology. It's kind of like an elevator in my view. You don't really think about it, but it's, it's behind the scenes of just about everything. They're not using paper maps or maps on film. It's all run with geotechnology, right? They know exactly where all the buses are. They know exactly how much kilowatts are going through this bill, et cetera, right? And, but part of that data that's being generated, you know, the whole big data era that we're in right now, a lot of it's generated by citizens, and some of it's generated knowingly by citizens, and some of it's generated unknowingly by citizens. So, for example, if you pull up a Google map or a Waze map of traffic, right, on 6th Avenue, for example, there's not a, a traffic meter every two, uh, a, 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 a little cord that goes across the road every, every meter, right? Where, how does that map, how's that traffic being generated on that map? All y'all, right? It's people motoring through on 6th Avenue, and they're all going 15 miles an hour, and that data is being fed to the, the, the data service that's, that's being mapped in your mapping application. So that is an inadvertent, um, maybe people aren't aware of that, but that's just one of many examples of you contributing to the, the data cloud. And, and I would argue that's a really good thing, right? If we can save, right, just... A couple minutes off of millions of commuters' time? Just think of the fuel savings right there and the time savings. So, so much of this is good. But, yeah, there's, there is a small element of that we need to be critical of, of the data. Um, even though, so just touching ever so briefly on your discussion, there's an actual post. And I'm sure you have this bookmarked. Oh, gosh. Okay, Envision Spatial Reserves coming up. The Spatial Reserves data blog. So this is a, a blog that I update weekly. My colleague and I just wrote something about that very thing, about Google Maps. And even if you say, no, I will not share anything, there's still elements of your location that are being shared. And there's been, understandably so, good backlash about that. So it's kind of like back in, way back in the 1990s. Remember the 1990s? Ooh, the University of Colorado has a web page. I'm going to write the URL down. Cool. Okay, that was the 1990s, right? Wow, City of Golden has a web page? Nice. You guys weren't around in the 90s. Anyway, that was what the 1990s was like. Okay, the web was new, etc. But there were some people that I was very close to that, Joseph, I'm not going to get one of those grocery cards because they're going to know exactly what I buy. Yeah. Yeah, you got to wait. Am I going to get it? But then, of course, as time went on, that was the only way you could get a discount, right? You can get your money off uh, when you had one of those cards. How many of you have ever gotten an ad pushed to you on the Internet? Oh, so you start looking at shares, and all of a sudden... So a couple years ago, you know, I've started getting all these S3 and GIS ads. I'm like, gosh, I didn't know we advertised on this page. This is amazing. And then, Joseph, it's because you're always looking at mapping data. That's why you're getting all these GIS ads, right? So... Your location and your browsing history and so on are, are actually being used, right, in, to 
feed you stuff, even paper ads, right? You get stuff in the postal mail still about, hey, you're probably wanting to care for your elderly parents. How do they know that? Okay, so it's, it, it has the capability of really enhancing our decision-making, but on the, I just want people to be also concerned about um, location privacy. Truly, if you truly do not want any of your location to be shared at all, do not use a credit card, right? And do not use your cell phone. I mean, but then it's like, well, gosh, all that convenience and all those better decisions that I can make and keeping in touch with people, you know, the, to me, the benefits are far, far outweighing the potential cost. So um, that lightly touches on your concern, but there's, there's really, I would, let me go ahead and we'll take another question, right? Let me get back up. I'm going to show you that. Goats do roam. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. We closed the internet. <laughs> All right, no worries. Anybody else have a question? I've, I've got one, but oh, we got one back here. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, the comment is there are multiple GPSs now. Uh, the GLONASS system, the Beidou system from China, uh, a couple of others. Different services use different signals, and some of them have the capability, especially if you're at a high-end, feel free to add to this, if you're in a high-end GPS, it has the capability of tapping into all of those. Most cell phones and some low-end GPSs, they only are actually operating off of the U.S. GPS constellation. And your cell phone also has the additional triangulation on Wi-Fi hotspots and cell phone towers. So it's getting some enhancements, not just the GPS constellation. So it depends on the device you're using, which system and it comes down to what Lou was saying about, and you were saying, sir, about accuracy and precision. So if I'm laying a, you know, a gas pipeline here along this street, I'm going to want a high-end unit. I'm going to want sub-centimeter accuracy. I'm not just going to use uh, a recreational GPS or a phone. So it, this all ties together. I'm glad you're asking. Yep. Now, interestingly, for those of you that weren't around in the year 2000, this is when, in May, the, the error code, the selective availability was turned off. So for years, we were using GPS, and we even had phones in the 1990s and so on. But when that error was turned off, suddenly we went from like 100 meter accuracy with a, a low-end recreational device to about 10. So we had an order of magnitude improvement. So I used to teach classes, and if our GPS coordinates were like somewhere on campus, it was like, yeah, cool. But now, and then, then it went to 10 meters, and then all of a sudden, not only did you have all kinds of applications of people, RTD, et cetera, using GPS uh, technology, but you also had all that recreational use skyrocketing. So all of a sudden, maybe a couple days after that was turned off, the first geocache was set up in Oregon. Who's, that, who's gone geocaching? you know, recreational treasure hunt with coordinates. That wasn't possible when it was 100 meters 
uh, somewhere in this field, somewhere is a little 35-millimeter film container? Are you kidding me? I'm going to have to find that? But when it was the size of a half of a tennis court, okay, I can look around this size of a room and find out. And now we're, we're down to, even with uh, a standard smartphone, one to two meters oftentimes uh, on the ground. And, uh, you know, higher, higher a- accuracy to come. Thanks. Thank you. I think we better wrap it up. Oh, okay. bummer. Okay. Well, I, I had a question, but I'll, hold, I'll ask you later. Okay. Um, I want to thank you so much for all the... No, you. Let me... Let me you. I want to thank you for all the Geo fun, for the Geo songs, and the Geo t-shirts. They all went, and the Geo books are all gone. So thank you, Joseph, for bringing everything. And speaking of t-shirts... Here's your very your very own. You folks are so spatial to me. Thank you. (laughs) All right, that was that was great. So thank you. Um, Just a few wrap up announcements. As I said earlier, in October it's our five year anniversary. So we'll be doing something special here at Golden Beer Talks and. Yoko, I believe we're putting together a survey that will get sent out. It's about time to get some input from you folks, so look for that. We'll distribute it to our email list. And then in October, just a plug for our next speaker who happens to be here tonight, Dr. Jim Reed of Rockware here in Golden. He's going to be talking. I'm not going to give you the title of his talk because I don't remember it, and it's long and it's complicated, but he's going to talk about applying technology, simple geology and common sense to finding where things are buried and their application in criminal investigations. So if, if uh, that doesn't get your interest, come back, come back in October. All right, so please help bust your tables, and we're all done. Thanks very much.